Dear church family, what does it mean to be radical? Maybe your mind drifts off to people who are extremists, fundamentalists, who will use violence to append society as is and achieve their goals. But really, the definition of radical or to be radicalized means to reform an inherent or fundamental part of the nature of someone. To be radical or to be radicalized means you've had an encounter with something that changes everything about you, how you act, how you speak, and even how you think. And if you're a true believer, that should sound familiar to you, shouldn't it? In a sense, every true believer has been radicalized. You've had an encounter with God Almighty, and He's changed everything about you. How do we know that? Well, Jesus has portrayed before us in the passage that we read, that we often refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, he has portrayed before us a gallery of the marks of faith. What that transformation looks like in the life of believers. And in these opening statements of this Sermon on the Mount, the statements that we often refer to as the Beatitudes. And Beatitudes is is just another word for roughly translated as blessednesses, if you will. To have these marks of faith in your life means that you are blessed. The Lord Jesus Christ pronounced you blessed if these marks of faith are a reality in your life. It's nevertheless, when you read through this passage, it is a description of a transformed people, but it is a transformed people who no longer fit in this world, in this society, have in a sense become spiritually homeless, if you will. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ describes these people as greatly blessed. And the question this evening that comes to all of us is this. Why is it so essential that we match this description? And that is what we wish to consider this night. Our text is from Matthew 5. Verses 3 to 10. And the theme is the blessedness of true believers with four points. They are blessed because they are heirs of the kingdom of God. They are blessed because God will trust his own children. They are blessed because they will enter into God's presence. And ultimately, they they are blessed because God will give them ultimate satisfaction. So a first point, 
True believers are heirs of the kingdom of God. We read in verse 3, in the opening statement of Christ's sermon, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Our children, who are poor in spirit? Who do you think about? You may well understand that Jesus is not talking about simply people that are poor, that are financially poor, who have little money. There's many of those in the world, but that does not automatically mean that you are blessed. Jesus here is referring to those who are poor in spirit. Those who are spiritually bankrupt. Those who know that one day they have to appear before the Lord, knowing that they have to give an account of their lives, and knowing that they cannot pay for their sins. Spiritually bankrupt. And not only spiritually bankrupt, but acutely aware of the fact that they are spiritually bankrupt. That is what it means to be poor in spirit. Why are they blessed? Do you have to give an account to the Creator of all of the universe, the one who made you, the one to whom you are responsible and accountable, knowing that you are a sinner and you are at God's mercy? That seems to be a pretty bad predicament, isn't it? How is it that Christ calls them blessed? Well, you know that those who are spiritually bankrupt have been made aware of this by the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. People who are spiritually bankrupt have been emptied of any strand of self-righteousness in their hearts. They know they cannot appear before God in their own righteousness. And as such, they have been humbled. And that's where God wants you to be. And therefore, Christ says, therefore, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean, children, the kingdom of heaven? Well, you all probably think of heaven as it is in eternity, outside of this world. And that is true. But in a sense, this kingdom of heaven is already on earth. Why? Because when you have a kingdom, you also need a king, right? Who is that king? It's Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ claims his people, he starts to work in their heart. He now becomes the king of those people. Therefore, Jesus Christ's kingdom is already on this earth. And therefore, Jesus says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is present tense. 
So if you know what it means to be poor in spirit, Jesus is saying, yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's as it were that spiritual kingdom in your heart is already an earnest for eternity future where that kingdom shall be finalized. So that's what takes place in the heart, in your spiritual life, when God empties you of self and he shows you that you are guilty, making room for himself to enter into your heart. What would be the fruits of that? This you can in verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs also is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the persecuted, and what do they have in relation to the poor in spirit? Well, first of all, who are the persecuted? There are many people in this world that are persecuted for all sorts of things. Their ethnicity, their race, their religion, not just Christianity. There are Muslims in this world that are persecuted for their faith. People are being persecuted for political views. Is that what Jesus is referring to? We know better. Jesus is referring to those who experience the hatred of the world as a response to Christian righteousness, to a life of godliness. He's not just speaking about those who live an outwardly moral life. The world has no problem with that. But when you live a life that witnesses of Jesus Christ with word and deed, you show forth the character of God into this world. And what it does is that it exposes the world to the fact that it is evil and sinful and unrighteous. And when that happens, the world will be infuriated. And here we see those who have become guilty before God first, who have been emptied of all self-righteousness, and who have now been made to yearn for the kingdom of heaven, they start to live this out as they become godly witnesses of Jesus Christ, they now become guilty before the world. And as such, they will face opposition. Persecution may happen in various degrees. It's not always open persecution. We don't face open persecution by the government in this country, at least not yet. Persecution may be as little as being bullied for your faith in school or at work or simply being ignored altogether when people don't bother to talk to you 
or hear your opinion because you're just one of those followers of Christ. The persecution will come as a result of your refusal to deny your master. Because if you're willing to distance yourself from Jesus Christ, the world's okay with you. So why does Jesus call these persecuted blessed? Doesn't it appear to be the very opposite of being blessed when you're being persecuted for your faith? Yet as we have seen with the poor in spirit, they're being emptied of self and self-righteousness. But those who are being persecuted by the world are also being emptied of this world and their society around them. Because we tend to be so comfortable in this world. But when you face opposition and when you face persecution, all of a sudden this world is not that attractive to you anymore. And you're being drawn closer to God. Therefore, Christ says, theirs also is the kingdom of God of heaven. And again, it's in present tense. It's a promise of a better world to come. But as Christ establishes his kingdom in your heart, you will already have a foretaste of that kingdom of heaven. A good example would be Pastor Richard Wurmbrandt. Maybe you've heard of him. He's the one who wrote the book Tortured for Christ. Tortured for Christ. He lived in Romania during the communist regime. And he was arrested as a pastor and thrown into jail. And indeed, he was tortured beyond imagination. And when they would be done with him, they would throw him back in his cell. And as he was there, pining away, left for almost more dead than alive, He writes of God visiting him and drawing him up, as it were, into heaven in ways that cannot be described in words. And it proves to us that God is capable. God is capable of making a kingdom, establishing that kingdom, and causing us to experience that kingdom even when we are in the deepest of suffering. It doesn't always happen that way with God's children, also in the persecution. But it shows that God is capable. So what does that mean to us? How can we apply this to ourselves? Well, the question is very straightforward. Do you know what it means to be poor in spirit and to be perfect? for righteousness sake if that's not the case at all you have to ask yourself are you holding on to something other than Jesus Christ by which you think you can appear before him if it is some kind of religious experience or some kind of sacrifice that you're making. Is 
Is there something that you hold on to besides Jesus Christ that you think is going to give you fulfillment and happiness in this life? And if that's the case, do you also know what it means to be persecuted for your faith? So often that is missing too in our lives. And then the question again comes to us, how conformed to this world world are we? Because if we are perfectly conformed to this world, the world has no quarrel with us. But when we go out through those doors over there, and we spend the rest of the witnessing of Jesus Christ, we will face opposition and persecution. If you don't know any of these things in your life, we have to ask ourselves some serious questions about our profession, don't we? But if it does resonate, if you know what it means to be poor in spirit, to have no righteousness at all left in yourself, that you need Jesus Christ alone as your Savior, your complete and full Savior, and you know what it means to face the opposition of the world, be it ever so minor and slight, then Jesus Christ pronounces you blessed because you are an heir to the kingdom of God and your eternal salvation is secure in Him. How do we know that? Well, that brings us to our second point. God will treat them as His own children. We read in verse 4, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, what does Jesus mean by those who mourn? Those who are sad. Children, there's so much pain and suffering in this world, right? Don't you think that anybody at some point is sad and grieving over something? Does that automatically mean that you are blessed? Here again, Jesus is referring to something very particular. Those that mourn, the ones that he's referring to, are those that mourn and sorrow over sin. We just heard of the poor in spirit having been made acutely aware of the guilt of sin, but those who mourn over sin also have come to recognize the shame of sin. Guilt and shame will always go together. They've come to see the filth of the sin that cleaves unto them. And yet Jesus calls them blessed. How is that blessed? To mourn, to be sad, to grieve over your sin for the rest of your life, knowing you yourself are imperfect, you're always going to be struggling against these lusts of the flesh. Why would you go through life grieving over that? Why wouldn't you just accommodate to it and adapt? Make it part of your identity and just enjoy it. 
But Christ says, those who are truly ashamed of their sin, who grieve over it, again, they're being spiritually prepared. They're being robbed of any strand of pride in their hearts. And again, they're being humbled with a desire to be clean and holy instead. Children, just to give you an example, when I was a young boy about your age maybe, I had my little bike and was going around in the neighborhood and I found this big puddle. And my friends all gathered around and I raced through it over and again until I was covered in mud from tip to toe. My friends thought it was funny, but then I had to go home and face my mom. And I was very embarrassed because of the filth that covered me. And when I walked into that house, all I wanted was to be clean, but I wasn't. Now, when, often when the Bible speaks about cleansing, especially in the Old Testament, the word that's often being used is one of scrubbing, giving a good scrubbing. And that's what happened that day. I went to the bathtub, and I got a good scrubbing. And my clothes went into the laundry, and it came out clean. Now I no longer had to be embarrassed. And this is why Jesus calls those who mourn and sorrow over sin blessed. He says, because they shall be comforted. What does that comfort exist in? He's using a future tense. It's something that's going to happen in eternity to come. God will comfort those who mourn over their sins. How is he going to do that? By cleansing them and forgiving them of their sin so that they no longer have to be ashamed. Some of that is already experienced here below. When you know by faith from his word and when God speaks to you that your sins have been forgiven. But as long as we traverse through this life, we continue to battle against sin. And every single time we get embarrassed all over again, don't we? When we fail, when we sin, when we backslide. But there will come a day when you shall have perfect comfort in heaven if you know what it means to mourn over sin. And there again is the question, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to myself? Do you know what it means to mourn over sin? If you do, that spiritual disposition of mourning over sin, what do you think, again, what what are going to be the fruits of this? And this we can read in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Now, who are the peacemakers? And again, what do they have to do with the ones that mourn? What is the relation there? Then again, we first have to ask ourselves, who are those peacemakers? Now, we have a lot of people in this world who are peaceful. 
Why are they peaceful? Because they don't want trouble. Have you ever seen these scenes on the news, maybe, when you have somewhere on the other side of the world, there's two people groups or two nations that go to war, and in comes the United Nations, these, these militaries wearing these blue helmets, and they keep the warring parties apart. What are they called? Peacekeepers. Because what do they do? They keep the people apart. The problem is that they so often do not solve the issue at heart. And we can bring it a lot closer to home, can't we? Children, you ever have a fight with your sibling? Your parents come in and they pull you apart? What have they just done? They were trying to preserve the peace. And even as adults, we can have family issues. We can have problems in our family life. And so often, we just, rather than addressing the issue, we just decide not to talk about it. We leave this big white elephant in the room and we're just going to avoid it because it's better to just keep the peace. But what does Christ say? Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers are those who labor to reconcile and to be reconciled. They will be the ones. What Paul says in, 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 the, in the letter to the Corinthians, why don't you let one of the least of the saints judge you between you? Why do you have to go to court, to the, world, to the worldly court? And that's often a question that we have to ask ourselves. Because it is often the least of us who will do everything to reconcile people and to be reconciled. And in in order to do so, they have to be willing to be the least. They have to humble themselves. They have to go through dust and ashes. Now why are they blessed? Why does Jesus call those blessed? Because true Peacemaking is an incredibly challenging and humbling task. It can be incredibly unrewarding. It will wear you out. It will cause you to go through the dust and sacrifice much. Why is that blessed? Remember those mourners? those who are embarrassed over their own sin, who have had all their pride taken away. It's those people who through humility have learned to know themselves, who have understood the shame of sin, who will be the ones most likely to be a true peacemaker. And therefore Christ says, they shall be called the children of God. The fruit of peacemaking evidences when you try to make peace with others, evidences that you are first and foremost at peace with God. And you desire to see others to be at peace with God. You desire to win others over for Christ, even if it comes at the expense of your own rights 
and justice. The only illustration that I can use here is that of my own grandma. She was a very humble soul. She had, in a sense, very little self-respect. And yet, I have never heard her say a bad thing about anybody else. Never had a quarrel with anybody. Always kind and nice. And she hated conflict. There you have a true peacemaker. And they shall be called the children of God. Because God is going to adopt those peacemakers as his own children. Some of that will already be experienced here below when God vindicates you in this life. But especially in eternity. In eternity there will be no more need for making peace. But also everybody who have been opposing you, shall see you as God owns you as one of his own children. So what does it mean to you and I? Do you know what it means to mourn over sin and to be a peacemaker? If you don't, if sin does not bother you at all, then it means that maybe you don't understand the shamefulness of sin. And if the shamefulness of sin does not bother you, if the shamefulness of your own sin does not bother you, you will also not see the need to be reconciled with somebody else. Because then we get into this hierarchy mode where we always lift ourselves up to others and we're always comparing ourselves with others. Well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. But it takes one who is completely humbled to be a true peacemaker. Do you know what it means to mourn over your sin, to hate it, to be ashamed of it? And do you desire to be a peacemaker? Are you a peacemaker? Then blessed are you, because God will comfort you as one of his own children. When will that be? That brings us to our third point. They will enter into God's presence. We read in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Again, we need to ask the question, who are the meek? Who are the meek? Don't we simply tend to think of meek people as pushovers? Those who refuse to stand up for what they believe in? Is that what Jesus is referring to here? I believe Jesus is referring to this. To the meek are those who have surrendered wholeheartedly to God's providence in their lives. And when when trials come their way, and when persecution by other men come their way, they don't protest. But they leave it in the hands 
of the Lord. Why are they blessed? How is it blessed to be at the mercy of fate? How is it blessed to be at the mercy of trials? Or especially when other people come after you and commit injustice against you and push you around. How is that blessed? Yet a true believer knows. A true believer knows that ultimately they are not at the mercy of fate. They are not at the mercy of men. But they are at the mercy of God. They have surrendered their lives to Him. Remember a couple weeks ago when we spoke about Romans 8, how all things happen for the good of believers, how they're being transformed in the midst of suffering to be made more like Christ. The meek understand that. It doesn't mean they're spineless, but it means that they have faith in God and that God is using whatever comes at them to transform them and to make them more like Christ. Meekness here refers ultimately to surrendering to God. Why are they blessed? Because Christ says they shall inherit earth. Not this earth with its things and its materials and its stuff. He's talking about the future kingdom, the new earth, as he shall recreate it. So that's the disposition, the spiritual disposition of what it means to be meek, to surrender to God's will. What are the fruits of this? And this we read in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And again, we must ask, who are the pure in heart, and how do they relate to the meek? We think of the pure in heart, maybe we know of people who appear morally upright and apparently genuine. People that are just really loving and kind, even if you know them as unbelievers. People that are just care, that are charitable. Wonder, you know, does God really want to punish these people and hold them in condemnation? But remember that it says it doesn't speak here about pure conduct, it speaks about pure in heart. It speaks here about pure motives, motives that are stirred by godliness. There was a wealthy banker who once had said, there's always two reasons as to why anyone, why a man does anything. Two reasons why a man does anything. A good one and the real one. A good one and the real one. The good one is the one you show to other people to justify yourself. And then there's a real one, the real motive. So if that is true, then you may say that every man always has mixed motives for doing anything. 
But Jesus here speaks to those who are pure in heart. The pure in heart have no mixed motives. How can you do something without having mixed motives? It's when you don't seek your own glory. If you seek the glory of God, you don't have to keep that a secret to anybody else. If you seek your own glory, people will smell that from a mile away. And that's why people have always two reasons to do anything. A good one and a real one. But the pure in heart have no mixed motives. They have pure motives. It doesn't mean Christians are always perfect in life. We still have to fight sinful inclinations because we're bent on making it all about ourselves. Yet the true believer yearns to please and obey God and to glorify Him. Those are their ultimate motives. Why are they blessed? To fight the sinful inclinations of the flesh. To have these, to to be in a sense bipolar, constantly fighting the sins of the flesh, yet in the spirit trying to please God. And to go through the rest of your life like that. Is that blessedness? Yet it is a fruit of a transformed heart. It is a fruit of somebody who desires, despite the opposition of the flesh, desires to surrender their lives to God. As we discussed, the meek, the meek who desire to obey God, to surrender their lives to Him, likewise the pure in heart desire with their lives to obey God and to glorify Him. It means that their hearts have been transformed. And their motives are stirred by godliness. And therefore, Jesus Christ says, they shall see God. Ultimately, all of us shall see God. But if you're outside of Jesus Christ, you will see God as judge. And when you look at God, His holiness will consume you. The true believer with a pure heart, that person shall be able to look at God, to gaze at Him as their Father, to gaze at His holiness and beauty for eternity and not be consumed. To see God means to be in His presence, in that new heaven and that new earth for eternity. And that ought to be the true desire of the meek and the pure in heart. Is it your desire? Does this apply? How does this apply to us? Do you know what it means to be meek and to have a pure heart? If you don't know what it, what it means to be meek, and by that it simply means that you're having a hard time surrendering to God's will, Is God no concern in your life's plan? 
Are you still trying to carve your own paths without considering God? Then you have not surrendered to His will. And that also means that your heart is not transformed because your heart is not pure. Your deepest motives are the very things that you would not dare testify before men. But if you do know what it means to be meek, to desire to surrender to God and to crucify the flesh, even in all the imperfections that may still cleave unto you, blessed are you because you will see God and be with him on a new earth for eternity. How do we know that? Because ultimately, God will give true believers ultimate satisfaction. We've seen this far that the children of God are heirs of the kingdom of God. They are blessed because they are heirs to the kingdom of God. And they're heirs to the kingdom of God because God will treat them as his own children. And as his own children, they will enter into God's presence. And then ultimately we will see in our fourth point that God is going to give ultimate satisfaction. We've arrived at the climax of the text, verses 6 and 7. And in verse 6 it says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Here again we must ask the question, Who are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness? Now, we live in a fairly liberal neighborhood. You take a stroll around the neighborhood, you would think there's a lot of people that hunger and thirst after righteousness. How many slogans do you think you can fit on one yard sign? How many colors do you fit on a flag? Every time you think you figured it out, there's a new, a new flag coming out with more colors on it. All in the name of social justice, to include everyone. Equality for all. Liberty for all. Is that what Jesus is referring to? Righteousness for all. And we know we can't be too quick to answer that question because there are certain things that we know, even in this social justice campaign, there are certain things in there of which we know that, that, that they are right. We should be longing for people to be treated rightly and justly. But the problem is, of course, when God is being taken out of the equation. What Jesus is referring to here is those who hunger and thirst after righteousness are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness first and foremost because they long for perfect harmony and peace with God. And they know that their own unrighteousness stands in the way. In order to be at peace with God, in order to be reconciled with God, you need God's righteousness. A righteousness that is perfect and unfound. And a righteousness that, a righteousness that we can find in our own hearts. And having that perfect 
harmony and peace with God then flows out into a desire for perfect harmony and peace with one's neighbor. But that longing for, thir- for, for pure righteousness is something that we do not by nature have within ourselves. We cannot stir this up within ourselves. And neither be produced in the society around us. No matter how hard we campaign for justice and righteousness in this world, we cannot achieve it here. It's a desire that comes from outside of man. God has to give you that desire. But when God gives you that desire, it will be a hungering and thirsting. What that means is that that desire becomes so strong that desire for righteousness, that desire to be perfect before God, that you cannot live without it. You must have it. Now, why does Jesus call these people blessed, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness? Because we live this whole life with sin within ourselves. We shall not see ourselves perfectly righteous in this life, and we shall not see perfect righteousness in this world around us. So you go through life hungering and thirsting for something that you know in this life you will not receive. Doesn't that sound miserable? To live a whole life for that which is not satisfied. Well, the text is clear. God shall satisfy that hungering and thirsting after righteousness. He shall satisfy it to the absolute fullest in eternity. When you enter into heaven, sin in your own life shall be no more. And unrighteousness and evil in the world shall be no more. God is going to cleanse the earth of all evil and unrighteousness. It will no longer exist in the kingdom of God. And especially that longing to be free of sin. Is that something that you have in your heart? Isn't that one of your greatest desires? To be rid of sin and unrighteousness in your own heart. Now, what would be the fruit of that hungering and thirsting after righteousness? This we can read in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And one last time, we have to ask ourselves, who are the merciful and how do they stand in relationship to those who hunger and thirst after righteousness? Who are the merciful? Is Jesus speaking about philanthropists who give huge amounts of money to cater to those in material need? Do you know these people, even if they're unbelievers, who are just so genuinely always at work trying to help others, pouring out time and energy to help the home? to help in some third world country, to be doing good to others. And do you know others maybe, especially these these rich billionaires who just give away huge amounts of money to help others in need? Is that what it means to be merciful? Is that what Jesus is referring to? 
Why do you think people would do such things if they're not saved? Well, it's very simple. Philanthropy is pleasing to the flesh. As we've already seen, man always has two reasons to do something. A good one, a real one. You go to some third world country and you pour billions of dollars into a big project, you help out thousands of people, you get to see the smiles on their face. It is incredibly rewarding. And it glorifies self. But what does it mean to be truly merciful? It is the desire to help needy souls. And to help needy souls indiscriminately. Including everyone. To love souls. To not be first and foremost concerned with people's material needs. Yes, that has part in the Christian life and in the Christian witness. But to be concerned about their souls. Because every soul is needy. From the richest billionaire to the poorest homeless person. To be truly merciful is to care for the souls of those who are easiest to deal with. To this, to this very kind neighbor down the street. To the most difficult and obstinate church member. To be truly merciful is to care for the souls of everyone, including the most unlovable ones. Why are they blessed? Why are they blessed? People, especially needy people, will happily take your money but try to cater to their spiritual needs and they will reject you in your face. Try to cater to the spiritual needs of an unbeliever or an obstinate person, especially when they're ungrateful, will wear you out. How is that blessed? Because it is proof that you yourself as a sinner have received mercy from God. And as such, we have come to know ourselves as the least of all men. Not just the least of all saints, but the least of all men. We just seen that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, this comes on the heels of those who have seen their guilt before God, their shame before God, having to be restored in the presence of God, having to be cleansed, having received mercy of God. When you come to see that it took God, His own Son, to save you, as a filthy sinner. It will equip us to be merciful 
to other souls. It will equip us to bow before others in order to present them with the gospel. When we know that God can save a sinner like as I am, then it becomes possible for absolutely everybody. Why are they blessed? Because the merciful shall receive the mercy of God. Having their sins forgiven and being the recipients of his faithful compassion will be the reality in heaven. But it is already experienced here below. The merciful are already the recipients of God's mercy here below. And when they enter into heaven, they shall be cleansed from their sins. God shall have mercy on them. And they shall be received in his presence through Christ, despite our own unrighteousness. You will receive Christ's righteousness. What does this all mean to us? Let us look at that in our final application. Are you longing for righteousness? Are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Do you seek that peace and harmony with God? Do you want to be reconciled with Him? And if that is true for yourself, then do you also seek to be truly merciful to others, desiring even the salvation of your greatest opponents? If that is not the case, then you're pretending that you can still find harmony and satisfaction in this world here below. That somehow this world can still fulfill all your needs. And if that is the case, then you're blind to the unrighteousness in your own heart. And for that reason, you will also have no desire to see that righteousness in somebody else. And then it doesn't matter how much time and energy and money you pour into helping others because you're still doing it for your own honor, which falls short of the righteousness of God. But if you do know what it means to long for righteousness, to long to be reconciled to God, and if you seek for others also to be reconciled to God, if that is your heart, if that is your yearning, if that is your desire, then blessed are you because God shall give you the desires of your heart. He shall give you that righteousness. And with that righteousness applied unto you, you shall receive mercy and you shall be received in his sight. But finally, we need to realize, have you seen how all these beatitudes and all these marks of grace, 
how they show a comprehensive, radical heart transformation. How it shows how believers are to be completely different in this world, from this world. Somebody who is spiritually bankrupt, who is guilty before God, will grieve over sin, will submit to God's will, will long for righteousness. Such a one is persecuted, but still pursues peace, has godly motives, and is merciful. You cannot cherry-pick these marks of grace. You cannot long for righteousness and yet at the same time somehow not surrender to God's will. You cannot be a peacemaker and yet at the same time not be merciful. All of these marks of grace have to have a presence in our lives. All these attributes are not things that we can just stir up in ourselves. They are received out of grace. It is a radical, spirit-worked transformation where God comes into our lives and makes us a completely different person. That is a supernatural work that we cannot do of ourselves. Where does it leave you? Where does it leave me? Is there hope? There is hope. Because these marks of grace, when we look at them, maybe you've, you've come to realize, and I've come to realize, how many shortcomings we still have. And yet somehow this is not a list of do's. Do this and you will be saved. No, Christ says, if you have them, you are blessed. Why is that? Because ultimately, it is a picture. All these marks of grace, all these beatitudes are a picture of Jesus Christ himself in his suffering. He was the one who had all these attributes in perfection. When we look at these Beatitudes, we don't go about measuring, seeing if we have achieved a certain standard and now all is well with us. No. We recognize them, even if they exist ever so slightly, and it drives us to Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of all this. you find yourself wanting these attributes, be honest with yourself. Does this look like a desirable life to you? Is this something you want? Because it is essential to enter the kingdom of God. Then give God no rest until you know that he has begun that transforming work in your heart as well. And for that, you need to first come to Christ in faith and repentance. We tend to 
put the cart before the horse and start looking for these things in our life before we think we can come to Christ. It's the other way around. God will begin this transforming work in your heart by first drawing you to Jesus Christ because he is the completion and perfection of nature. A true believer throughout this life will struggle, but there is a true transformation, the transformation that has been put before us in this passage. Blessed are you when you're being transformed. Blessed are you when you have sought for refuge in Jesus Christ. And when he has become your king, and when you're willingly subjecting to this transformation taking place in your heart, you are greatly blessed because you shall be received into his presence and be in eternity with God, gazing at his beauty and glorifying the Savior forevermore. Now, if you notice to be true for yourself, live in this reality. Remind yourself of it and give him all the honor and glory. Amen. Lord God, Father in heaven, who are we that thou wouldst bestow such incredible rich blessings upon us? That we would be the recipients of your kingdom to be received into your presence as your own children, to be transformed by thy Holy Spirit and to receive that ultimate satisfaction in him. Lord God, for those who know these marks of grace to be a reality in their lives, we pray that thou would strengthen them with these truths, that they would be mindful of them, especially when they go through trials, when they face the hardships of this world, knowing, Lord, that thou art drawing them away from this earth closer to thyself. And Lord, for those who have no desire to surrender to Jesus Christ, that thou would stir their hearts and draw them, that they would give thee no rest until they have found that same salvation in Jesus Christ. Father, wilt thou be with us for the remainder of this evening? Wilt thou bring us safely home there where we are accepted? Wilt thou bring us safely again into thy house next week? And Lord, wilt thou take none of us away unprepared? Cleanse us of our sins, even as of this worship service, and apply, Lord, that which was thine. Let it all be to the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.